I've had the opportunity to literally work with uh, directors that came out of the shadow programs and they're directing episode. I've worked with veteran directors and I've worked with uh, directors that come out of stunts, editorial. So it's, it's quite fascinating, you know, as a DP that I get to see the process from so many people mm. and it's not a right or wrong way of doing it. It's just a matter of knowing what your superpower is. Mm. And then to not only know, do you, knowing your superpower, but it's also know your weakness and, and being able to check your ego. Welcome back to another episode of the Rough Cut Club. I am your host, Joey Nicotra. Super excited to be here in the studio with my amazing co-host, Shane Wright-Zammer. Shane, how are you doing, brother? Doing great, man. Got a uh, second kid on the way any minute now, so hopefully we can get through this podcast before yeah. I have to exit the studio. <laughs> Wifey's at home right now. She's, what, week out, maybe? Uh, two to three weeks. Yeah, you never know. You never know with these things. Kid on the way, man. Yeah. Well, we're excited. I know you're about to drop off as uh, being my co-host and take a little sabbatical, but... I'll miss you, man, but it'll be a, a good little season of life for you. Yeah, that's right. Well, I'm super excited today, man. You uh, Tell us about our uh, next guest. Yeah, man. So we actually have a guest on the show who has worked on Spider-Man 3, uh, Fast and the Furious, Queen of the South, and the uh, up, I guess it dropped in 2022, the new National Treasure TV series. And so we are excited to welcome to the show director of photography extraordinaire, Abraham Martinez. Abraham, man, thank you for joining us on the show. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Pumped to be here. Yeah, man. So we actually got uh, connected through a guest that we have already had on the show, Jonathan Paul. And he he came by the studio and said that you got to chat with Abraham Martinez. He's the man with a plan. And so we're excited to have uh, mutual friends get us connected. Yeah, definitely. It's a small world and it's nice to get connected. Uh, you know, I'm from Texas and there's a lot of overlap and I love the fact that, you know, Texas are like right in the middle of the map. So it's always, you know, a journey going, going back home, especially working on Queen of South and Dallas, which is really nice. And, you know, I went to university in North Texas, which is just, uh, you know, a commute, short commute up to Denton. So, uh, you know, I'd have a fondness, uh, in my heart to always be home, you know, live in LA for the last 25 years, but Texas is, you know, still home to me, it feels. That's awesome. I'm so glad we, we actually all share that along with uh, uh, Jonathan Paul, uh, the uh, UNT, alum. UNT alumni, man. Go Mean Green. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thanks again for being on the podcast today. This is great. Yeah, no, it's great. I, I remember my, when I was going to North Texas, the there was a job opening for a movie and I was looking for an internship and I went into the office and it was called Space Marines. And it was like in 1994, I think. And the guys in the office were all from North Texas. And I got my internship. You know, I was working for free, sweeping floors for the art department. And we had leftover sets from The Running Man, an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that came oh, in from Mexico. Yeah. So cool. And I remember like showing up in an empty warehouse that was like a grocery store. I'm like, oh my gosh, uh, where's the set? Where's the spaceships? And like, oh, it's coming in. It's a truck, uh, semi trucks from. Mexico from the Running Man, and I took off the old Running Man set walls and started tearing it apart and repurposing it and making spaceships out of styrofoam. It was insane, and I was so pumped. You know, it is my junior year, and I was so pumped to be there 
that I was like showing up every spare second I had just showing up and it was for free. And they're like, what's wrong with this kid? We got to start paying him. Cause he's like, you know, <laughs> everyone would come in and do their internships and then get their quote unquote hours in and leave. But I stayed there like all the time, just sweeping the floors, doing everything, going, you know, to Dunkin' Donuts, grabbing donuts. I was just like, so, so excited to be on a, on a film set. But that, you know, I, I felt so lucky because by the time I got to my senior year, I'd already worked on a, Hollywood uh, low budget B movie, <laughs> but it was dude, great. Yeah, that's awesome, and man, it turned out to it. be a classic film too. Like Running Man is a like one of those timeless movies that you can go back to and watch. So that's a really cool, you know, student film to get to work on, man. That's amazing. Well, the, the, I didn't work on the Running Man. I worked on Space Marines, but we took we repurposed the sets. Ah, oh, right. got it, got it, got it. Yes. Awesome. it was like it was like the leftovers, you know, like <laughs> yeah, taking yeah. the leftover sets and then repurposing and making our own little really bad sci-fi. But you know, there were some recognizable actors back from the '90s that were in it at the time, and it was the first time I saw a film camera. Uh, you know, when they were shooting, and you know, they were doing explosions, and it was really, really low-fi, techy good. But it was like a blast. That's so awesome, man. Well, dude, you have uh, a really, really impressive IMDP credits page that I want to jump into and, and kind of weed through. But uh, for those that don't know you and ourselves included, give us a little insight into what you're doing in the industry right now, man. Well, currently I'm on uh, attached to three TV shows, actually. I'm, I was in the middle of, of Cobra Kai shooting that, and then the strikes happened and we shut down. Mm. And prior to that, just before that, I was uh, shooting The Lincoln Lawyer season two. Uh, which just came out on Netflix slightly after we connected. So that's been out on Netflix. And we have a new series that I shot called uh, Obliterated, which is kind of a, a throwback love letter to the 80s, 90s action movies. Um, a comedy series, just a really raw and edgy comedy, but really intense action, which comes out of the spectacle division of Netflix uh, for television. So you have the movie department, which is Grey Man, and all in um, extraction, and then you have the TV series, which is you know, shows like Witcher and Obliterate. Just happens to be an action comedy, uh, big spectacle, shooting air-to-air helicopters and combats and big shootouts, huge LED video walls. It was a really massive production. Um, so that's coming out November thirtieth. It's called Obliterated, and um, so that's where I'm at now. And I'm, I, I DP predominantly uh, TV shows. That's awesome, man. I cannot wait to check Obliterated out. The 80s action, air-to-air, come on, dude. Yeah, that's going to be sick. Yeah. I'm excited. November 30th, and that's on Netflix, right? Yes, coming out on Netflix. Okay, the dope. original series. It's going to be, I can't wait. It was insane. Every day was insane. Oh, we got to dive into yeah, that. Yeah, I know. And I, I got some questions for you too on just how you shoot on LED volume. You know what? This will be a great opportunity to segue into that, man. You mentioned that you shot on the volume walls for uh the obliterated and, and doing those so i'm curious as a dp you know how you approach working in those environments because led video production is something that hasn't been around incredibly long and the tech is evolving really rapidly so i'm curious like as a director of photography what are some really important things that you make you, you want to make sure that you have on set or that you're doing to uh, ensure that you have a successful production when working in a volume studio well, I think out of necessity, especially since the pandemic, we were no longer shooting car work uh, practically, which I completely enjoy uh, doing. So it was kind of thrust upon us. And I felt like, you know, it was evolving in real time as we were like figuring out these walls. Of course, Mandalorian, 
you know, they were here able to be here at home in Los Angeles and have all the techs and all the gurus and they were able to come up with a foundation. I think for me in the type of TV work that I do, it's kind of very run and gun. And, and I think a, a lot of what I do in terms of the wall, there is a, there is a foundation, which is, you know, some of it's similar to green screen, blue screen. And some of it is, is, uh, stuff that's been in, you know, that's, happen with real engine and and mocap that we didn't do any of that type of work it was mostly a, more of a backdrop uh smoke and mirrors thing for car work and and for sets that you're shooting to pretend you're you know to to cheat that you're in morocco um but what i found fascinating in terms for me as a photographer it was that to using the the mo maximizing my gains off the video wall to make to create the most incredible cheats and mm in that you're kind of trial and error, you know, too much spill backing into the wall, which makes the image milky. But then I'm also using it for other ways of making reflections into windows and like uh, using it for lighting tools. So I was really want that tool, much like the Ronin R2 is it more than a one trick pony. You know, you can use it on the crane, you can use mm -hmm. it in gimbal mode, you can rig it on speed rail, you could put it underneath a, a lift. Uh, that's how I see video wall. So I was suspending them hanging outside practical buildings, doing day for night, uh, doing using some of the panels for lights, uh, taking pictures with my phone sometimes of real quick sets that we that will never get again or with my Fuji camera and then tossing it up on a wall and doing inserts on the wall. So I just really wanted to maximize the use of these video walls, so production, because it's very expensive to rent. And, you know, if you can figure out how to use it to save production time on the calendar. So it's been a lot of time savings uh, to use the wall. Uh, I'm, I'm currently testing on this downtime, you know, some with my son, 16, you know, with motion cap where, you know, he wants to get a suit and, you know, I've been really learning a lot from him because he, he's done some uh, motion capture work on his own uh, with real engine uh, creating something in our, in our, in our home. So it's, uh, but now I think things are leveled off. There's a lot of uh, classes and workshops that you can take mm. and I, I highly encourage everyone to get the foundation down. But it all changes so fast. There can be a new video wall coming out next year. So you got to really stay on top of it amongst, you know, the cam all the cameras we have to keep track of as well, you know? Yeah. And I feel like one of the really important things when working in a volume studio, uh, even more so than normal, is, is the storyboarding component because you're constantly moving the background. You want to make sure that you know, you have all of how your talent has to be turned and the props like a car and whatnot to get all of your coverage. So when you go into a volume production or you're putting panels up, um, what does your prep process look like to make sure that you have all of the coverage that you need and you have a good plan for your day? That is huge. That's probably like half the battle. Mm. Um, because you, you're, you're right. It's, it's, uh, you know, with obliterated, I went out and shot the plates uh, before we started production. So that took up a lot of time, stitching the plates and trying to figure out the angles for every room because we shot in a penthouse. So you had to really figure out your point of view. And, you know, we're not doing 2D, 3D. I mean, we're not doing 2D and a half or 3D plates, you know, where you move the camera, you know, in real engine. It's really just a flat wall that we're dealing with. So you want to make sure you cover the angles that you need and do the math on set. So I, I think for me, my touchstone is to be as practical as possible. I literally would go stand on the floor in Vegas and see what, what that vision looked like. If I was 20 feet deep, 
10 feet deep or near the window, I would see what that perspective would look like. And so depending on that perspective, it can change, right? Because if you shoot with a different millimeter lens, it's going to change what that looks like outside the window. So you want to kind of find a, a big, broad net. You want to cast a, a wide net on your plates to be sure that you can do these cheats. And then not to mention, sometimes you just flip the switch on the video wall and it goes blue screen, green screen. And you want to make sure you get a nice clean plate if it's not working out. So you want to make sure you cover you. So you, you really have to have a huge checklist. Uh, but for my starting places to be as practical as possible, when I'm out there shooting the plates, I'm really trying to digest the perspective uh, and then try to, you know, if you shoot a little bit longer lens, you can, of course, move move your image around uh, behind the actor. So th that part was a bonus so that you can make a very cherry nice backdrop. But, the, you know, going, going from the plate, having practical references, making it feel the lighting uh, feel natural, trying to balance it out. Sometimes you want to blow out the window, make it feel real, not so pristine and clean. So it's actually opened up more work because you got to communicate with your boards op who's, who's handling the plate. You have to convert it. You have to color it. You have to, so it's really quite involved. Uh, I'm hoping, my hope is that, you know, that it just becomes its own department with the plates and you can actually have more opportunity for DPs to go out and shoot these plates and take care of it and know how, how to handle it. And there are some, there are some vendors that are doing that. Um, Lincoln lawyer, uh, we had a vendor that handled all our car work and, and shot our plates. So it, it did take a lot off my plate. And if you are in charge, which I tend to want to be involved with the plate process, uh, it can take up a lot of your time. And uh, the TV schedule, it's like you're not even, you're never sleeping. So it's, it's very consuming. Mm. Man, that's so good. I, I actually have my first volume production coming up here uh, very shortly. And it's, it's such a, you know, difficult thing to learn because you have to have the opportunity to go in and learn on. And so, uh, it's always great to talk with people who have gone before just to get that, uh, you know, just secret advice on how to succeed and whatnot. And I think it's going to be a, a thing for DPs to know that they're going to be required to know how to do. Um, and it's one of those chicken before the egg situations. Like you got to learn That's how right. to do it to get the experience. Um, but you also got to have the experience to get the job. And so it's great to right. learn from people like you who've done it before. So, yeah. uh, with that being said, man, I want to ask, uh, about, uh, national treasure and, and just, uh, that film, because that was, um, a really big blockbuster hit that initially came out. Um, and there's gotta be a lot of pressure almost going into taking what, already existed from the movies that they had made and then turning it into a series. Um, so I'm curious one, how you, how you got that job and how you got connected with the producers and then just what that experience was like for you. You bet. No, I, I, I was really excited to, to even get the interview for national treasure. Uh, I came in through a recommendation with the line producer, um, who someone recommended, uh, I, I think maybe another, Another fellow Texan, actually, uh, AD, JJ uh, Perez, uh, recommended me. Um, and they were planning on shooting in Baton Rouge. I don't, you know, I don't live there, but I definitely had crew there. And um, so it was kind of a, a dual, you know, he recommended me on the AD side to a line producer, and they put my name in the hat. And I think they interviewed some DPs. And uh, But my starting place for national treasures. I love the franchise. I love mm -hmm. Nicholas cage. 
I love treasure hunting and I, I feel like for me as a filmmaker camera person is like that, that that's a explorer you know mm. that's an explorer's job I've, I've done jobs in in the Amazon I've done jobs all throughout South America Central America China um, Africa I've done so many safaris so for me it was like the perfect fit and they wanted to revamp it. So I, I knew that we we're going to create another world. So much like many of the successful franchises, you have to like carve out a, a different part of the world. And I knew that there would be some overlap uh, with different actors uh, coming into it. So I know the TV schedule uh, is very tight. It always is in TV. And so to do that, uh, they did have a lot of scope that they wanted to feel like we cheated San Antonio and Baton Rouge. We cheated. We did go to New Mexico and we cheated Mexico. We cheated some, you know, Graceland episode I shot. Um, so I think, you know, for that show, we had rotating DP. So we did a lot of talking to each other. I think the biggest thing for me was really trying to make it feel, um, have the colors and the vibrance that I feel that I get when I go to Mexico. And also understanding personally, like where I identify as a, you know, not only one as being curious and about ancestry, but also being Latino, Mexican, and the pan, the pan American treasure experience. You know, how how do you even tap into that? Relate to that? So for me, I, I did take some ancestry, and I went back to 1705 of my ancestry, and like just really started to use it. But you know, for me, it gets me really involved in what the writers are trying to do. You know, maybe not necessarily so much for photography, but definitely the art part with 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 the muralists of Mexico and the colors and the rich colors for, for treasure hunting. But so I just took those two components of what the world was uh, like in the national treasure franchise and the stuff that I could personally uh, attribute to the colors that I felt like I seen in Mexico or felt in Mexico or uh, you know, Graceland or whatever it is that we're trying to say in each episode. Man, I love that component of you just even diving back into your roots to just really bring truth to what you are capturing there. And it's always fascinating to me. Uh, and I want to ask, you know, just when you get a script like this, you know, what your prep process looks like for, you know, when, when you got this role, because, you know, the majority of a film, especially as a DP is made in prep um, and making sure that you've done your homework and that you have your light plans and that you have your, you know, just plan a plan B for when thing, you know, weather hits or whatever is happening. And so I'm curious, you know, what your preparation process looked like when you got handed this script. Yeah. So I'm always, Okay, as personally, as a photographer, I'm always prepping. So I'm always shooting street photography. I'm always doing something with photography, like, every day. So it's never nonstop. So I'm always looking at color combinations. Uh, I shoot Fujifilm. It has different color lots, has different color palettes that I could put in. Like, even, I think, yesterday, uh, I didn't even take a picture. I just scrolled my film stock on my camera, and I looked through it. And it's like I can see what it does to colors. I, I can take my camera and go in an art gallery and just look at Picasso at my LUTs. So it's like a, my LUTs in my pocket. So I'm constantly shaping and growing that muscle. For National Treasure, it was unique. I was up for a movie uh, called Homie, and uh, it was about gang life in, in Los Angeles. So I was already coming up with some color palettes that, was, uh, that I wanted to root into indigenous uh, Mexico uh, for the gangs and uh, that exploration. So... In the prep process, I think the core of it's painting and my photography. So that's kind of my baseline. So I'm always, my wife's a painter. 
some way studying painting and and learning you know different um techniques uh in painting which is very slow i just don't have the patience for it that's why i do photography <laughs> so when national Tre treasure or obliterated or lincoln lawyer i immediately start diving into what the color palette for in the case of lincoln lawyer was the previous season there's a lot of browns there's a lot of um, maroon magenta ocean blue and so uh, i knew that that was kind of a, the baseline national treasure i knew that it was gold but I didn't want Mexico to feel yellow. So I, I knew that I didn't want to make it feel like the stereotypical Hollywood way of seeing Mexico because that's not how I experience it. And I still shoot in Mexico quite often. Um, so for me, I'm always kind of keeping hot, ready to pivot. So I keep it very, very broad with my street photography. I'm constantly testing, constantly testing. And so, but when I read the script, I it, it's interesting for me because I've done... Cobra Kai, which had ties to Karate Kid, then Lincoln Lawyer, which has ties to Lincoln Lawyer movie, uh, the National Treasure has ties. So it's kind of like I'm in this strange place because my background is working on movies. So I was a camera assistant. I thought I'd be working on movies. Then we have Peak TV, and now I'm off to the races shooting television. Still harking back to my love for movies. So everything I, I try to do is to figure out, like, on Cobra Kai, who worked on Cobra Kai? My friends. I'm sorry, who worked on Karate Kid? My friends who worked on Karate Kid, like Al, uh, Alan Disler worked on Karate Kid as an AC. And I'm asking him about, I call him up, ask him about lenses. And I'm like Cobra guy shooting so I can figure out what lenses they were using. Then the director on Obliterate shows me True Lies with the helicopter coming up to the window. And then uh, I said, who worked on that? Jimmy Miro, like one of my mentors. He was there during that scene. So I asked them how they did it. So that was one of the benefits coming through the slow rise from through the camera department is that I met so many people working on these big budget movies that actually worked on a lot of the movies that I, that I reference. So I try to use my own photography as a reference. And then I try to figure out which direction we're going. If, they, if they're, they're talking about 80s, 90s blockbusters, then I'm referencing True Lies. I'm referencing Die Hard. And for Cobra Kai, it's kind of a little bit of a mashup to the modern modern time, but still throwing back. I still have the same lenses that they use on Karate Kid on Cobra Kai right now, currently. But I'm also using an Alexa 35, which is a very soft sensor, and it's it, it's filled, it has better highlights, and it has like a really great fit to the film stocks. And I'm still testing. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go shoot some a roll of film with a. 35 millimeter, I'm going to take my Fuji camera and I'm going to take the Alexa and I'm going to try to, to mimic because there's always the thing about DaVinci Resolve is like so many new plugins that are coming out. And a lot of times, even my colorists uh, have to stay on top of it, but I want to stay on top of it. So I'm constantly trying to, trying to grow in the color, color space and technology video walls, the Ronin, the DJI 4D. Like I'm always trying to stay on top of it. So you're right, it's multi, multi layered being ready constantly trying to see what technology is out there how do i bend and tweak the the technology to what's not intended to you being used for um so that that's the time you can take risk and doing tests so when you're on set you know it's like a thousand bucks a minute you know it, it can be very expensive and you don't want to test it on company time so a lot of times i take my big camera and shoot tests all the time on, on the sidelines thinking about my next show so it's always ongoing when i was on national treasure i was testing for obliterated you know, when I was on Queen of South, I was testing for the Shy or, or um, 61st Street. I'm always constantly testing. That is a master class right there from Abraham Martinez. <laughs> that is awesome. That's 
I I think we all need to hear that level of prep and then just proactiveness to be uh, ready for the next project, right? Like while you're in the middle of one, he's prepping for the next one. And the color thing with the Fuji film, I love that, man. I, I'm not a DP, so I'm disconnected uh, more from the, the camera world. But how cool is that, that he holds up the camera and looks through the film stock? That's sick. I love your dedication. And I think, too, to say, you know, you're taking these projects. What I love what you're talking about is, you know, Cobra Kai, Karate Kid, Lincoln Lawyer, Lincoln Lawyer. You know, you've got you've kind of got this reference that you're paying homage to, right? And you've got the network to ask but then you're bringing your own style as an artist with the colors and, and the spectrums that you're bringing in, man. And it's evident in your work. Uh, anyways, that's, I just applaud you with that process. Yeah, well said. Yeah. yeah. With the, uh, with the, um, is there any kind of process you can talk about? So, you know, I, I direct and produce commercials work, some small narrative stuff. Is there, is there any kind of process that you could speak to the, to our audience of working with like a director or the producers and like executing their vision on on that level as well from our artistic side yeah i feel like uh being in, involved in currently what maybe is the demise of peak tv mm. but i felt like i've had the opportunity to literally work with uh directors that came out of the shadow programs and they're directing the episode i've worked with veteran directors and i've worked with uh, directors that come out of stunts editorial so it's it's quite fascinating you know as a dp that i get to see the process from so many people mm. and it's not a right or wrong way of doing it it's just a matter of knowing what your superpower is mm. and then to not only know do, knowing your superpower but to also know your weakness and and being able to check your ego so so for editorial i learned so much uh, from the, the, the editorial the directors that come out of editorial or stunts or some of that's an actor i learned so much from the actor uh, turn director uh, wow. part and it's such a great collaboration because to me the camera is an actor mm. so I felt like so relatable to the actor directors and it's just to, to me one of the best uh, collaborations that I, that I get the opportunity of doing because for me to dive deeper because what I feel as a camera is I try to dive as deep as I can into even backstory or even into to putting a heart into the camera and i think that's what actors do too they try to, to, to flesh it out and that's what i try to do with the camera because the camera stands in the gap for the audience to feel and depending you know on the optics of where you want that camera to be closer wider and you know i don't always control the edit but if you share these lens uh, personalities with the director, then maybe get a better cut. So mm. everyone has a different process. And so when a lot of times when I first meet the director, I'm like trying to gauge what they like, their taste test, um, things that they don't like even, and to really know where, where they're coming from on, the, on their superpower. So one, for an actor, it's blocking. So we try to make the most dynamic blocking or the most interesting blocking and, and give it life and eject life into it rather than just straight cuts of people just talking, talking, talking. So, for, you know, for stunts, same thing, shooting stunts and just feeling so liberated to have work with someone that's come out of stunts and learning so much. So I can apply it, what I learned in stunts to the one who's an actor and the one who's acting in the editorial. And so it just really weaves a really uh, malleable, uh, giftings that I get to glean off of so many different directors. So I would say, you know, knowing what your weaknesses are, this is what I'll work on. I think most of the time I'm really working on my weaknesses uh, as a DP 
because I lean into my strengths, which are habitual. So framing, uh, well, for I have camera operators, so I have to have a level of trust mm. and communicate how I like the framing so I don't get to do it myself, uh, you know, other than lining it up and shooting. But to hold the camera and frame is like the best feeling in the world. Um, but in terms of directing, I think – I think the biggest bulk of it, which you probably hear all the time, is you know you prep as much as you can because you're visualizing it. Then you flesh, and then you let go of your plans because you're looking for magic at that point. Yeah. And then magic's coming from actors, magic's coming from camera, or even a dolly grip. Uh, mm. So it's a really to be open. And um, so so as prep as much as you can. I, I I prep everything. Like if I'm on, I haven't been prep. For this podcast but if i do an interview on Zoom, <laughs> I, I, i'm pre-visualizing who i'm talking to like yeah. i'm literally like thinking of the people i'm talking to on the zoom and like just really using the thing is like we're we're all in this together as creative people and mm. you know the camera's not rolling all the time mm. but if you have a habitual life in the prep mode then you know you're using your imagination like a lot of times i'm I have furniture in my head, I have cars, I have like so much, but it only comes together when I read a script, mm. you know? So it's like, there's so much imagination happening, but once you get a script or a book, it aligns into your imagination and you get, you actually get to see it. Well, is the couch by the window or is the couch, you know, is there two lamps or one lamp? Like you can just go on and on. And by then, by then when you're designing a set, you're like already figuring out like the curtains or the shears, like you really get to, Go, go swing by the set decorator's office. You swing by the production designer and you're really to change things. Well, I want this window. We can't afford the window. Well, just give me some sheer curtains. Just make a hole in the wall. It'll look like a, a window. You don't have to buy glass. You know, you know, so it's like really exercising your imagination just more for photography. But in the, as bold and as strong as you can in the prep, the better off you're going to be on the set because you've already lived it in your imagination. And a, and a lot of times know that it may not meet your expectation but there's still gold to be ha to happen all the time the gold happens uh mm. but just to get that process to let it go and to be free man i love that i love the focus on prep but then like as you said letting go and let the magic happen and it comes from all departments that is so true you brought something up that i'd love to touch on uh you, uh, you saying uh you know being the dp um, but you have a camera operator. I know like some people choose and Joey's nodding over here. Cause I know he loves to cam up his stuff as well as EDPs. So is that, you know, Abraham, uh, is that a choice that you get to make on projects where you go, okay, I got multiple cameras. I want to be just EP and have ops. Or is that kind of decided for you through the studio? How does that work? Cause I'm, I'm ignorant on that part. Well, well, our union has us, that's a union position, camera operating. Mm -hmm. So on a movie, I can, you know, in a movie I can operate, but you still need an operator, but you can maybe operate B camera. Uh, in, in reality, TV moves at such a fast pace. I just don't have time to operate really. Mm -hmm. And quite often I'm one step ahead. So I'm already talking to the next set, you know, like pre-lighting in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. So the operator can work out the moves and get, get, you know, kind of run the set, you know, in terms of what's happening with his camera and B camera and, his or her camera. Uh, so if I'm off to do a pre-light on, on the kitchen, I'm able to, to, to delegate, you know, you know, direct the photography really. So um, that seems to be 
the speed part of things is to delegate. And that's why you want to have people, you want to surround yourself with people who you trust that have maybe have the same, same sensibility or mm-hmm. maybe come from the same place as, as me. A lot of the people I work with have, did come through the big movie uh, food chain. Um, so, but when I was working on Spider-Man three as a camera assistant, we weren't like, uh, we were shooting like a page and a half a day or something. It was like something super slow, but very, <laughs> very intense and very high pressured and stressful. Uh, but in TV it, it is stressful, but it's for me, speed is very exciting and, um, there is, you know, a certain kind of energy that goes with it. So, uh, yeah, we, we have, it's a union position and I, I use it as a collaborative team so we can make our days and get the, the shots that we need for our director. Yeah. And even as a DP, I think that the big factor for me in wanting to operate or not is whether there's multiple cameras that I have to be watching. And so if I have the choice to, or, or, or really the, the luxury of there just being one camera, uh, and, and production can move slow enough, then I, I do like to be the one in charge of, you know, all the nuances of the framing. But if there are multiple cameras in play, then I find, uh, when I get into post and I, was operating and and DPing at the same time. And my B cam, I don't want to say that it always suffers, but there's things that I would have changed, uh, if I was living behind the monitor, which is something that I've had to learn. But, uh, one of the things that you touched on a while back, and I want to, I want to go back to is this concept of each person having a superpower. And so I'm curious that, you know, when people are kind of coming into their roles and their specialties, you know, how do you discover and tap into a superpower on set or a competitive advantage? And then I'm curious what you think yours is. Well, I definitely know what mine is. It's uh, because I came up to the camera department from loader all the way, you know, to operator, to DP, to assistant. So I, I think management, uh, managing a team, you know, I've managed, you know, I've been with Sean White, uh, heliboarding and helicopters. They're like four or five helicopters oh, shooting so a movie for Universal. And, uh, you know, I would key, I was the key assistant uh, for eight cameras. And this is like Warren Miller camera ops. It's like the most intense you know, photography on the planet, hanging up, you know, dispatching different camera units on different mountain peaks and, you know, life and death, you know, uh, situations. I would pack their parachutes, so to speak, with their camera kits. And it was film, mind you. Back then, you know, people were shooting mostly snowboard videos on on uh, Super 16. And this is like 35 millimeters. So um, a very, very intense packing, you know, like sometimes in some shows, I think, uh, you know, big Hollywood movies, we lay a cargo net out and put all the camera gear and just have the helicopter take it. So it's been like ma- massive, massive company moves. Uh, we loaded up uh, on Oblivion, we loaded up an uh, entire FedEx uh, airplane. They just rented the entire airplane at FedEx and shipped all our camera gear. So so I was loading those the, the cargo, uh, like I, marine boat work, underwater work, car work, every, every aspect you can imagine at the most high level, intense and near death experiences I've been a part of. So to have an execution and having knowing what to be done. And again, in the prep is to, what it does is it saves time. You get maybe more takes with actors. Your wrap out times are earlier. You're saving money. So I'm very much uh, in in terms of doing that. But at the same time, also know who to hire that can do that as well. 
and so they take a load off, but I can see it and 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 maneuver um, within the company. So this the good thing is there's so many amazing assistants now that know the Ronin and that know all the technical stuff. That's more it's become digital because ninety five percent of my AC work ninety five percent was all film. Mm. I only worked on one digital movie and I was oblivion. All the rest were film. Wow! But as DP, I'm ninety five percent digital. So I'm a complete hybrid. I'm a total, uh, you know, you guys are too, like a total hybrid, you know, handing of the torch into the next generation. So mm. I've always, I was at North Texas. I was cutting on, on, on audio tape. And then the next semester I was doing Apple digital. Mm, like I was wow. editing digitally and I was shooting super eight. Then I was shooting digital at North Texas. So it was like a total transition. It's been like that my entire life, typewriter, pager, cell phone, you know, yeah. um, so I think it's running a company. And then I think for me and probably for most DPs, uh, framing is, and I would say even for most people now have cell phones, I think framing is, is habitual now. I don't think framing is as precious as it used to be because the level of cameras that are out there. So everyone it has, it has an ability to frame, but, uh, but you can go to Sammy's and buy a camera, but you can't go buy the, the know-how to have it execute, to build, mm. to, to suspend a camera upside down, go through a window, have a handoff and, and, and lay out the decking and have deck built and ramps built and have everything set up. And my, you know, a lot of times I've like, I go back again, I have amazing, great teams that do that already, but you know, it's, it's being a voice in production. It's because because they can be shooting one episode and I'm, I'm there prepping. So we're all, I'm going through it like this, this location is not really suitable. Let's pick this location. Let's keep looking. So it all goes into the prep of, of knowing that know-how. Yes, you can rely on your grips and, and gaffers on the day, but in, in advance, it's really great to get to fight for your team, to get the gators that you might need or even order a helicopter for an hour, you know, mm. whatever it takes. Man, you, you brought up an interesting point, which is that so often framing is not as appreciated as it used to be. And so I'm curious to know when you're going into a movie, what are some things that are really important to you when you're framing a shot? I know that for me, I, I have gotten, like you said, so comfortable making things like very, um, like textbook perfect, like you would learn like the rule of thirds and it's, you know, perfectly lined up and you have this perfect ratio. And so for me, when I'm looking at framing a shot, I'm, I'm more often looking at, you know, how I can make this something that isn't normal to look at and how can I make this interesting in a unique way? So I'm curious what is really important to you when you're going to frame for a shot? No, that's a great question. I, I think, yeah, framing, you know, framing, it's an ongoing process. It, it, it is, you know, you have framing where the corners land and the symmetry and you have this. But I think for me, there's so many more layers as a DP, of course, with the lighting. But it, and it's a growth when you see like a Spielberg shot or you see how you know, maybe the movie from the fifties of how they were shooting. So for me is to really communicate the scene in a way that is always so interesting to the eye. It's not necessarily having something cool and blurry in the foreground, but it's kind of having a moment where you can compound 
you know, silhouette. And then somebody walks in that same frame and it becomes a close up. And then you go with them and it lands to a two shot. So for me, it's trying to figure out the compounding elements that make it dy- dynamic, but supports the scene. And to me, you know, for every artist is a different way of conveying that. I think a lot of the work you do see for me currently is that I do come from, like I, I'm heavy handed in the stills uh, photography part and speed. And sometimes that's what it takes to get in the scene. But I use that to inform like how the track's going to go. So that, that, certain millimeter lens becomes something else and becomes something else. So you really want to stretch it out, but you do know you're going to have to cut for, you know, for a 44 minute episode, you, you know, these different things. So it's, it's really very like an orchestra, you know, how much of the horns don't hear, how much of the clarinet. So you really have to pre-visualize what they're going to use in the cut. So even though you want to make something cherry nice and do your framing, but you know, it's going to cut, which ha- often happens on these big crane days, you know, you you just really have to figure out how to balance it and to really make the day run smoothly and, and with your choices. So it is so involved as a DP with the lighting and, and, and the camera blocking. It's like nonstop, really. Like you, you don't ever get a break. You're in the rehearsal. You're in the blocking. You're in the shooting. And you're lighting the next setup. So it's constantly nonstop, which is for me quite a rush. Uh, endorphins are popping. So it's the cool thing is like it never stops. Spielberg is still making these killer, killer, and Mitch Dubin still doing those. Uh, Janusz doing amazing camera moves and very inspiring. So I'm currently watching Spaghetti Westerns. I'm like really, really trying to grow that muscle. So, but yeah, I think so. I think you're right. It's like as a DP, that, that, it, it, it can be a buzzkill because we do get uh, distracted or caught up on so many nuances. Um, but that's what makes it, that's, you know, that's growth. You know, I think that's real growth and, and to making that a habit, it's the best thing. I'm a huge fan of the dynamic changes. Like you were talking about, like going from that silhouette to following the character to the two shot. And so I love seeing DPs that can execute that. And you're just like, where am I going next with this? And the frame, it's just perfect, perfect per each time, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. I love seeing that work and referencing. I got to know you're talking about spaghetti Westerns. My father showed me um, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, right? Like, that's the classic spaghetti western, right? And so, and man, I love those series. And that actually really inspired me um, as a teenager, as a a younger uh, kid, uh, to get into filmmaking was, you know, those spaghetti westerns. Are those the ones you're mentioning, or is there some others that I need to watch? No, 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 those are the ones I'm watching. I'm actually watching my 16-year-old. We're on a fist. We just finished the fist field Fist few, fistful of dollars, few, right? Fistful, fistful of dollars. dollars yes. Yeah, and then there's a few yeah. dollars more, and then there's good, bad, and the ugly. I yeah. think that's the three, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so yeah. good, man. And, and then we're watching. And then I'd watch uh, Once Upon a Time in the West, which is like the best with Charles Bronson. So oh, brilliant. I think I need to yeah. see that one again. Yeah. It's been too long since I've. Seen, I, I, yeah. yeah, I gotta. I'm gonna check that one out again. But the yeah, the spaghetti westerns, man. There's something about those. They're classic just, too. Yeah. They're just like classic Hollywood. When you think back to that era, it's just like you know the classic like Clint Eastwood. Yeah, like it was something different too yeah. at the time. Like it was just it was revolutionary. You know, yeah. So and that's what you guys I feel like are yeah. both talking yeah. about is like doing something like good and perfect, but also doing it different and unique to yourselves. You know, and that's what yeah, the, that's what yeah. makes it you the good. Yeah, the good thing about I've noticed in terms of process is that we have a projector that just is a, on a huge wall, but it's not an expensive projector. 
uh, it's like a LP. I forgot the model number, but it's, you know, it's like round. It's, it's very, it's so it's battery operated. But what I like about it is unless you're really focused on color and like grain, you're looking at all that, it does have loss, but what it does in the experience of framing, it gives you a big picture. It makes it super immersive to feel the mm. frame because in terms of camera movement, that's timeless. Those time, those shots, maybe the, the pacing gets cut out a lot nowadays with the slow pace, but the camera movement is timeless. And that's, I think the gleaning point, you know, naturally the film stocks are no longer, you can definitely mimic, you know, and even if you don't know much about color, you can get a great colorist. You can mimic that, that color palette. But in terms of the movement, the camera movement, and if you're watching on your phone and your iPad or even your television, putting on a projector is very tactile. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's the experience that you can really grow, especially like if you haven't seen it in a while and you really notice your process and your growth, it's a really great barometer to be like, oh my gosh, I can see what they needed to do this shot and I want to do this. And yeah, I think it's uh super, I'm super, that's what I'm super pumped about other than FPV drones. Uh, yeah. 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 I go spaghetti Westerns, FPV drones. Like, yeah. Those, Two different next, sides. Next there. Excitement. Yeah. yeah. I'm Dude. adding FP or uh, I'm adding projectors to my Christmas list now. Yeah. Uh, I gotta, yeah, I gotta start experiencing it. I love that. Man. Dude. Well, and it's just the traditional way that cinema was right. experienced. And so right. it's, Correct. it's so funny, like thinking now in the digital age, like we're always tapping back into, you know, the original mediums that film was created in. And it's so insane to think that they got so many pieces right early on with just even projectors and shooting in film and the, even like the spaghetti Westerns, like just, uh, you know, and even like the early, early stuff, uh, like singing in the rain, like these timeless movies that were like on the early days of film. Like there's so many things that they got right that we're trying to rediscover and relearn nowadays. And I love just, even the projector piece of how you experience the movie changes the way that you're able to study it. That's so fascinating. Can I derail us for a second? I got to know, and I, Joey, I don't even know if I know your take on this, but you guys as DPs, Abraham, how do you feel about all of this nine by 16 vertical video, (laughs) less of a frame for you to be able to watch, you know, because people are consuming their media that way, right? Like, as you mentioned, you made a great point. You're like, they're watching on your phone or your iPad, you know, it's great. It's convenient, right? It's convenient that we can watch, but it also changes the viewer experience. But, uh, what's your, what's your feeling about vertical video? Well, you got me on fresh because I shot my first commercial just barely a little over a week ago in that format. Wow. And it was kind of mind boggling. When I was driving home after we wrapped, I'm like, I just like, often you like, you know, after we do a long shoot, you're like, your framing is like, you're trying to drive home. And you're like, I'm on the curb. It was like, you know, Mr. Robot. <laughs> days, like, I, like, I couldn't even drive home. I had to like detune myself. Uh, <laughs> but no, I just shot my first video that way. And I was like, afterwards, just thinking the whole time, you know, about that vertical crop. And, um, and I'm not a fan of it, but you know, it, it's, it was quite a learning curve for me to think that way. So, you know, I think, I think for me, it has its place in the branding world. So, uh, it's not too much of a bother. I think I can do it every now and then, but you know, we do do it sometimes on, uh, insert shots for the phones and, you know, I, I literally have a black magic camera. I just have sideways with the monitor and the actor just holds it themselves. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't think it's the best, uh, ratio, but you know, the ratios are, 
things are really, really wild now in TV, you know, four, three different ratios. Sometimes I'm shooting anamorphic on, on Lincoln lore. We shot anamorphic for a day. Same thing with queen of the South. And, uh, I'm changing from 4k to 4.6 to 2k. You know, I, I just shift all around in, in different formats, but, you know, knowing our native output, uh, you know, just making it safe for that. I'm, I'm stabilizing. So I'm open going to 8k. I stabilize with that fork. 4k output uh so it's constantly just becoming uh, another one of those different frames that i just have to be in mind this more more diverse yeah the wild wild west of the filmmaking nowadays right because yeah. it's like all the Pretty different much. aspect ratios and- yeah and I, you know for me i think that it really depends on what you're shooting because i like when i'm watching a movie and it's in a two, three, nine to one aspect ratio. Like there's something about that viewing experience that I really enjoy and, and appreciate. And if I'm consuming something on Instagram, like it's one thing, but just with traditional movies, I think that there's a magic about the the horizontal landscape aspect ratio, but not always are you filming movies. You know, if you're filming small talking head commercials or promos or whatever, then you know, if the intended medium is for social media, then I think it makes sense. But anything outside of that, there is a magic to a 16 by nine or a two, three, nine to one. Um, but you know, even photography, we've experienced vertical photography for years and that has never derailed us or, or made us feel weird when we look at a portrait photo. And so I think that it's, you know, I think video is finally catching up to, uh, uh, aspect ratio that has been traditionally consumed in photography for for years, and so it's it's an exciting new uh, medium that we get to explore. But it's it's really only new for video, not for photo. And video is just moving photos. So it's um, I think we're finally catching up to just how stuff has been consumed in photography for a long time. It's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I get that. On yeah. on the note of photography, you've brought up the street photography that you've done. And I want to, I want to dive into that for a second. Um, how do you feel like film when you're shooting film photography and even you loading film as an AC has impacted how you DP in the digital space? Cause obviously, you know, there's a more intentionality behind what you're doing when you're shooting film, which we all know, but I'm curious as someone who has identified in that hybrid space, how you feel like, your relationship with film has impacted your digital creation? That's a very good question. And I think that's definitely, you know, a sea change for, for many up and coming DPs. Cause I only think my entire process on digital is completely in one part, it's completely film in terms of just, you know, un- and unfortunately the directors always keep rolling and we just keep going. So it's, it's this loss of sacredness for sure. Uh, but in my mind's eye and maybe until recently, uh, I always, you know, I still operate the viewfinder. So for me, there's a transcendent thing. When I look in the viewfinder, it looks like a big 40 foot screen. So when I was on queen of South and the shy and different shows, I always think, uh, the cinema, and it's just because of acing so much on movies, I just felt like that was always the set, it was just a movie. And it does, 
you do have to fight to find that sacred space. And so far it's landed to keep it, keeping a safe place for my director and the actors and not letting the camera get in, in the way. So for, there's such an immediacy with digital that that becomes a part of your process. Like, let me throw the light up while they're rehearsing. Let me, you know, let make it about camera, you know, make it about all these little camera techie stuff. And to me, that's the backseat of the entire thing. So I try to keep a sacredness for the rehearsal and for the process with the acting and the blocking and really try to hold it. Cause that's like theater, right? That's like vaudeville. That's a classic place hmm. that I can protect and not having, you know, why, why is uh, Sarah Lane the Dolly track? You know, like why, <laughs> you know, like let's, let's give the respect that is owed. And I think a lot of the times, you know, for digital, everything's reactionary. So a lot of us are, have such a great immediacy. Um, so with that said, that leaps into my photography, which is the ultimate immediacy. So it's the opposite of vaudeville. It's opposite of theater. So when I do street photography, there's no grip, there's no crane, there's nothing. It's just me with the earth moving at its own pace. Mm. So there's an authenticity that is sacred for me as a street photographer, that it's real life. Like mm. there's a, there's, there is a beautiful 75 year old lady with purple hair holding a white fluffy dog that's going to come around from the shadow into the light. And she's going to have deep blacks behind her. And it's a beautiful expression on her face. And I snapped it. I'm getting goosebumps as I'm talking about it because it's such a treasure. It's such a beautiful life moment. And what it does for me is it's how do we manage background? How do we manage the set? How do I build a 40 by negative solid on two cranes to get that that deep black on my film set like i did on national treasure like it informs me so much where's the sun coming on that building that's hitting the glass that's hitting the set like it gives me all the math in real life in real time so not only am i doing color notes i'm doing time of day notes i'm doing like and having this this huge rush because the actor can go do theater without me and the camera and grips and electric and everybody, I can go do street photography without any actors mm. and just be as authentic as possible. Like I have to time out my footsteps and, and just get the shot after I get the shot and then, then it's up. They know, you know, out of myself, but it just keeps going. It's nonstop. It's an incredible rush. So it gives me language to how I did Lincoln lawyer or how I do any of my shows. I show up an hour early uh, to set because a lot of times I can rearrange furniture, you know, make adjustments to the set along with the art team because it is a union job. But I show up early. I do, I do my street photography then because, because basically the way what it did mostly was it changed my idea of the director's finder. Mm -hmm. I, I, immediately, I kind of go through all the sets, even on Lincoln Lawyer. I, I would go through on the Tech Scout or the First Look Scouts, and I would go take a ton of photographs. And I kind of know where it fits into the story. And a lot of times the camera operators are like-minded. They're already fine. Well, how about this shot over here? And, you know, I already took so many street shots that I already kind of knew in a sense that, you know, this is where we're going to do our establishing shot, but, you know, together we can collaborate. So for me, doing the director's finder is become less because I've already gone through with, with my LUT and my street photography uh, technique on set. So I just treat every set like a street photographer. And furthermore, I now do three, my son taught me how to 3D scan with my phone. So I 
3D scan the sets. I can top, I can move up into space and like look at everything from different angles if I need to. And it just kind of helps me with the uh, lighting or just to communicate things. Dude, I love how you describe just the magic of street photography and the authenticity component of it. It's inspiring just hearing that as a DP. And I love to, and I don't want to, uh, quickly rush past this, but even the keeping the rehearsal sacred piece, like that is such a good, wholesome reminder, even for me, because so often we're behind on set and we're trying to catch up and the director is trying to block the shot. And we have people pre-lighting, you know, when the, when the blocking isn't even a hundred percent set. And even if you know where a light is going to be, like there's something to, um, really even just showing that respect to the actors. And I think that that's something that DPs oftentimes lose sight of is that they are performing a super vulnerable art where they're putting, they're pulling emotion from deep within themselves and they're trying to work with a director who they may be intimidated by. And when you're, when you have a million people moving around them and you're not showing that respect for them and their craft and prioritizing your own, uh, it's just a good reminder to, to give them that respect to work. And, and I thought that was a super, super profound thing that you said. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah, over here going, I don't, I don't even, uh, shoot anymore or do anything, but I'm like, dude, I want to do street photography after you explain yes. that moment. But that's so true. I did, I did a little bit of like doc and reality, you know, cameras and, and it's, it's like some of those moments that you can only capture once, you know, you talked about that, the lady coming around the corner and just, that is so it is a rush, you know, it's like that it, you could only, you could only capture that moment one time. You know, and you did, and you captured it in an artistic way, and that's really cool uh, to do that. So yeah, yeah well, I gotta get back in the street. Yourself, yeah, what you find yourself is that the world is like a gem, and you're exercising a muscle for. And I love the word you use is like nuance. Like you're looking for the magic. You're training your eye and your being and your soul and everything you are where you're standing coming it together there's nothing like oh i see the blue wall with the red umbrella coming together they're way down there you'll start seeing it advance when you first start industry photography you're like always the last like a second behind you're like gosh but then all of a sudden you start attuning yourself much like dps are in their own like stratosphere in a time bubble because we know we've got to start pre-lighting something else so we're always living in the future so you can see where the world is lining up and then you get that one moment my favorite is when the you see in chicago somebody running to catch a train or something and they run and i look and i frame up like a nice beautiful frame and as the guy's going you hit click and they're both their feet are off the ground and mm. they're just caught with the little briefcase and the tie <laughs> like yeah. so awesome those little moments like you, you can actually set up for it and then you get it but you get one shot you know I try to do like the one shot. You can put it where it's multiple frames, mm -hmm. but I just try to get the one like because it just puts more discipline into me like film. Yeah, yeah. that's sick. It, 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 side note, where can we go and can we go see your uh, street photography anywhere? Is it on a website or do you share it publicly? I, I share almost. Uh, well, I share mo most, some of them, like the really precious ones I don't share, but most of my... Instagram is nothing but like a, a contact sheet of all my street photography. Love it. So if you can go to abe.martinez.dp. So just my name. Uh, and I, it, even though I do cinematography, it's mostly street photography. So, um, 
I'm constantly referencing color palettes. It's it's basically my 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 light studies every single day of my life uh, as I go on exploration. So that's awesome. We're gonna put that. We'll share that link in the podcast uh, description so people can check out that Instagram uh, page and look at your work too. Man, thanks for sharing. That. I, that's I, awesome. I love that he said that he only shares the stuff that isn't his favorite. <laughs> like he keeps those you for keep himself. Some of it. Yeah, I that's, love that. You got to keep some of that sacred. Yeah. That's so backwards from how most people put stuff out. And I love that he's like, this is the best stuff I'm keeping for me. And then you guys get the, the yeah, runner up. That's so. beautiful. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's, that's awesome. art right there. That's beautiful. Man, I, I want to ask you, um, just as a DP, uh, how you go about choosing your camera and lens package for a project. Um, are you looking at the nuances of how, you know, a camera will read a certain image, how a lens, like what the characteristics are of a lens? Is it more function over form for you? Um, how do you go about choosing your camera and lens package? Well, I, uh, well, I think the number one common denominator for all my workflow is speed. Mm. So that's the number one thing because I already have the management and, a great team. So I want to be sure I was an assistant for a long time. So I, I know like, Oh, why didn't they get this piece of gear? Why don't we, you know, I want to make sure all our AC. So I usually blanket it saying like, if there's a cable or a, something needs to be made, like to me, it's everything that surrounds the camera. Uh, but you're right. I think for the, where it seems to where my career is going is like set extensions, video wall, like big action car, you know, big like scope, uh, as much as I like to do the A24 personal intimate story, one camera, me operating, it's not. It's like I have eight cameras uh, ranging for every little piece of action possible. <laughs> so, so with that said, most of my workflow, I try to maintain consistency. Whether it's Lincoln Lawyer, Cobra Kai, whatnot, it's it's my it's my it's my music equipment to be to be fast. So in terms of the art of it, I really look, I've gotten into lately not depending on lens text as much. So I'm really trying going into, because I used to work at NPS. I think you might be familiar with them. Yeah. In college, I got a job there. And Joe Loomis was the first guy to start teaching me lenses. I would throw all these lenses on projectors and really didn't know what I was looking at, but I learned a lot. And then I went to New York and learned under Guido lenses. Uh, uh, said I would have my lunch next to him to learn lenses. So... For me, the most important part are lenses because the sensor, the cameras themselves, except the exception of the Alexa 35, the sensors themselves is like a, just a blank film stock because back when I started, it was just Kodak and you can make the Kodak film look like, you know, there's so much variance to make. They didn't look like just the Kodak, uh, you know, one rec 709 look, you can manip manipulate your color and your lab process. So I have a very, very intense digital workflow lab that I, that I do process, super intensive just for me. So what I do is I do a lot of tests beforehand. I'm always constantly testing. So I usually find the lenses. I do, I, I find what the show looks like and what lenses are, are needed for the show. And then I back into the camera. So if it's a big VFX show or scope and, uh, action, I tend to be on Sony with a bigger negative because I know I'm going to do some stabilization. I know I, I'm going to need, you know, higher rep, you know, higher rep, you know, going 8K, 6K. I'm, I know I'm all over the place uh, for that. 
if it's a show currently I'm on Cobra Kai, I'm Alexa 35 because I felt it had a smoother, softer sensor and better color retention and, uh, and it was a better fit uh, for the image. Even though we don't want to make it look like Karate Kid, I think they should have some sort of ghost of Karate Kid. Mm. So it, was, it just had a, a little smoother, less polished, less digital look. So that was what I'm aiming for for Cobra Kai Season 6. Um, but it starts to me with the lenses and the feel that I want to get. Uh, so mostly I shoot with Panavision. Lincoln Lawyer was uh, uh, ingenue lenses. But most of the time, it's Panavision. And the reason why it's Panavision is because I'm very attuned. Uh, it's kind of like you're on a date. Uh, you're, you're in a relationship with, with their lens system, their technology. I was in AC for so long with Panavision. So I'm getting to know. In fact, uh, I have a Panavision mount coming in for my Fuji camera. And I'm going to go to Panavision and put up all my lenses from Cobra Kai onto my Fuji camera. And there's my date. So mm-hmm. I'll be rolling with that for a few days. So I'm constantly testing that. And then I drop it into my color system into airy reference tool or fuji studio x and i just go in and really really tear apart the negative in in my fuji camera it doesn't matter because the digital is digital raw i need to know how to manipulate the color how to fine tune you know there's a lot of things that are missed in in digital that you don't have a film like halation and you know, certain type of the way that the light reflects in the barrel or off the gate. So, you know, I'm trying to mimic a lot of that or create things in a way on set while I'm lighting. So, so I'm really between those two, but on the shorthand, I was, I shoot black magic as complementary cameras. Hmm. I shoot black magic with my Alexa 35 with Sony lineup. I do FX three, FX six and Sony Venices. So I have the full lineup. So on obliterate, we had eight cameras. Hmm. Uh, I had three full-time camera teams and Queen of South. I had also three full, full camera teams and a Ronin tech. So I was a very, very heavy camera. I mean, we take up half a Panavision with all the carts in the bay. So, uh, so on Cobra Kai currently I have, uh, three black magics, uh, pocket cameras. One's b- always built on a RS three. One is handheld mode that with, has everything taken off on a chest pack. Uh, for combat fighting, and then I have uh, another Black Magic that's rigging for different rigging mm. uh, te- techniques, and then all the rest are like Alexa 35s, and my colorists match match that. So I'm currently looking at the DJI 4D. So I feel like it's never nonstop. Like I'm looking at that camera now in terms of just trying to be really, really free. I love the freedom, but it's, it's not really freedom. It's like a ton of like tech work to be involved of how to, how to make it lighter. And so, but to me it's to have the spirit of the frame, just to be floating and free, just to, and you don't have that. You have a bunch of hardware and it gets heavy. Mm. So I got to wear ready, ready rig. And so it's massively massive. So many things to think about when you're picking a camera, what's going to, how's it going to feel in the Ronin? What if we're anamorphic? What if it's too heavy? So you got to really do the math. Thankfully I was an assistant and kind of have it, you know, figured out roughly. But the ACs definitely push the ball uh, a bit further. Man, I could sit here and talk to you for like four hours, dude. This is just so good. <laughs> I 
I, I'm just, I'm forgetting my questions even because I'm just so enwrapped in everything that you're saying, man. This is amazing, for real. Um, I, I, I want to be respectful of time. And so before we get to our final five, I got one last question for you, man. And if you could boil it down to the up and coming DP who is who is trying to make a name for themselves, there's so much competition right now in, in that uh, role. What do you feel like really sets apart DPs right now and is one area that you feel like is being overlooked by those on the come up that those who are coming behind you can learn from and 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 take note of I I feel like uh right now there's a you know when when I was coming through film there was not some like upward mobility wasn't very fast I mean it from the time when I was a prep tech at MPS to the time I I was DP it was like many, many, many years. So I knew for me in my experiences, which I feel like everyone has different experiences to DP. Uh, for me is the course of time, like where you want to be at the end, end of this road. And for, you know, there's so many moving parts, like being in the union and having pension. But then, you know, I felt like on Lincoln lawyer, in the office, there was somebody I worked with in the office 13 years ago at, on Big Love, and now I'm a DP. So having your time, having your core people that are, I think, to, 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 throw, to throw something that's tangible for everybody that won't have the same experience as me working on Spider-Man or Django or whatever, it's, it's to be around people that are like-minded in terms of your art, that are supportive, and that are going to go the distance and have a long game as well and have a shorthand so having your team go through the course of time because a lot of those people maybe branch off and maybe they're working at on a leo burnett or something with the agency and have a company and they start hiring you so you're able to do the work you want to do in the commercial world but uh it's basically having a foundation of people around you that mentor you one step ahead one people that you're mentoring behind you and what i found for the many upcoming dps now you know, maybe even like up to 10 years ago that when red came out a lot in 5d, a lot of guys were doing their own color, you know, and I felt like I'm so intense on color now, but that's because that was my weak spot. And now I finally got to a place where I can do it. But when I first started shooting, I wasn't doing color. I, I, t I don't even download cards. Even when I shoot street photography, I just buy a new card. I know it's, it's so silly. I just, you know, I just, put it in my computer yeah, or I mean, I put it on, on my my phone and it sends it to me on my Wi-Fi. So I just, I'm like way backwards. <laughs> uh, but I, f I feel like a lot of, a lot of, uh, I mean, I do take it to my dit and have them download it and do these things. But the, um, I think now I can see what my 16 year old is doing and with photogrammetry, mocap, uh, Houdini, Blender, like he is, he's able to like, go into blender put put a scene up from a christopher nolan movie and then like rip the entire camera move down mm. like he really can cut and paste into the virtual world that camera move and i feel like whatever's around the corner is going to be super intense with with volume with mocap and with just really doing make-believe i think it's gonna really push us technically so I feel, um, you know, ha with having those core people that you're coming up with, and with, with you doing the video wall, you're probably with the team that you've been with that can trust you, and you need to have that supportive uh, network. 
in, in for you to engage with the new technology. So I feel like that's basically what's going to be the hurdle around the corner for most DPs. Uh, you know, it's less less foundational what we've been doing in, in the history of cinema. So you know, doing photogrammetry. That's what this is all about. The strike with the AI is that I can do. I did a, a photogrammetry scan of my son, and we have his skin. I mean, they come out from Minecraft, and they know how to skin everything. They can build a virtual body going through time. He's doing digital 3D prints for assets and 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 Blender. So really staying involved with uh, uh, VFX. Mm. And good thing for DPs, we stay in touch with special effects. We can do things in camera. So I feel like that's what's around the corner for us to make these quick decisions that are either saving money. Can I do this for a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks, or can I do it in camera? That's going to, you know, cost uh, three hundred bucks a minute. Well, you know, as a DP, you got to do that math and help them say, well, I tell you, you can do this in post. You can put this plug in, you can stabilize it or, or whatever the, the trick you're trying to use. So I just say core people you've been with and then just staying on top of technology. Because before it was like color, which is a good template. But now I think the, the, it's opened up so much with technology. So good, man. So good. Well, dude, thank you so much for coming on and uh, just pouring into this show. I have learned a lot as a DP just listening to you, and I am going to leave here inspired. So we appreciate your time, man. And before we get you out, dude, we got five questions that we like to ask all of the guests that come on our show. So my first question for you is if you could go back and do it all differently, what is one thing that you would change? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's always the hardest question first we hit you with. Yeah, but anything you can think (laughs) of that saves somebody. Yeah. Sure. Well, I learned this in the back end when I started shooting, but I started going to film dailies. So on Spider-Man 3, I started going to dailies, but it was done through the projector. So on all the movies I've ever done previously, I think I would have wished I would have gone to the film dailies trailer or on the lot and watch dailies instead of like taking a nap. (laughs) (laughs) that's good solid advice yeah solid advice indeed so it's not really practical for anyone here but i think (laughs) there's just such a who knew that that would have been such a treasure that's no longer exists Mm. yeah now you just watch dailies on your phone yeah right that's awesome what excites you the most about the current film industry or market Uh, hands down the fpv drone hands Mm. down that that tool much like when the 5D came out and put the camera into filmmakers' hands, I think the FPV drone, see, we got very drone, like people were just using, you know, house hunters and just using these drones and just because they have it, which is great. But then now it's kind of like overkill. Like you're looking at it like, oh, you know. But if you can use the drone where it doesn't feel like the drone, I think there's going to be so many, so much magic to be had because even now uh, I don't fly it. My son does. And we go out and do like, this is the 30 foot crane package. And I give him all the cues and he does a 30 foot crane move or we do a 50 foot crane move or 85 foot crane move. And to make it not feel like uh, it's a drone uh, tracking shots, following shots. Like we're doing everything that you would normally do with Steadicam or Ronin mm-hmm. on the FPV. So I think that, to you, you know, we have to still deal with the sound part and whatnot. But for me, that it's not a non-issue. I think getting well versed to make the drone feel like not a drone. Yeah, 
ambulance and Michael Bay, they're doing killer shots. The notice, like they're like they're doing killer shots with the drone. It feels like the drone, but to make it feel not like a drone and to do just really compelling moves, I think it's so key. And to me, that's been the biggest excitement for me lately is the FPV drone. And I'm learning, you know, we're trying to push the envelope, but make it not feel the same. It's like you don't want to impede your process just because you can do it and do flips and go through holes. I think just setting up the shot because we built so many different shots like in you know something in a tube and a slow push in but we can do that on the drone so it's amazing man i love that just i i haven't even thought about fpv through that lens before because so often it's like doing the technical fly through shots flying through the hole and and zipping you know 70 miles an hour but i yeah. love the idea of just taking it and doing those classic you know crane moves which you know, a techno crane is no cheap feat to have brought out to your set Correct. and they're super slow right. and you have to have a operator there and you got to pay them a day rate. And so like having an right. FPV drone is such a quicker way to execute some of those shots. And I, I've never thought about it through that lens before, but that's brilliant, man. I, out of, out of curiosity, which FPV drone are you guys using? I think he's got the Avada. Yep. Yeah, yeah. We, we, yeah we bought one as well. We've been playing with it. We're yeah. we're very like rookie right now with it, but it's so fun. Yeah. We love it. So, yeah. but it, that's brilliant. That's a great idea, though. We got to start practicing realistic Classic. shots that don't yeah. look like drone. I love yeah, that, man. That's great. Yeah. Where are we as an industry headed in filmmaking right now, and what should we be focusing on? Oof, I think you're seeing now mocap and skins. I think a lot of our stunt stunt people will have skins on them for the stunts. We'll just take the actor's face. We'll be faster. Uh, I think, um, you know, back to shooting plates, figure out ways to make it cheaper, you know, to make two and a half D plates, the video wall uh, experience, the, the, all the walls that are out now and like a few years are going to be out in the general public. Mm. So they have to sell them the way we just, this, discard so much in this industry you know you know a lot of the walls maybe be shipped to africa or shipped down in south america much how like a you know if you see what history it was with old film cameras india and africa and these different countries will buy buy our, a lot of our used gear just because of the sheer volume that we shoot here so a lot of that excess gear is going to go everywhere you find a lot more stages with video walls it's going to really exercise everyone's muscle to be on the same competing page so, and, you know, you have so many programmers, they're gonna be able to think more what to do with it. So I think with the mocap uh, volume world uh, landscape, it's gonna really, really grow leap and bounds as these walls, these first, you're already starting to see uh, newer walls come out with, with better attunement and we're making lenses for that and, uh, and software and programs to make, to make our life easier. So it's gonna get more expertise. I don't think we'll lose jobs. I think we'll have more jobs because even with the video wall, we added more jobs mm. to that. It, it's not like AI took anything away. So it's just how to manipulate. As much how I see the wall as a more than one trick pony or the drone as a one trick pony, this AI, experience is going to only make more opportunities for us to to find a place mm, it's great it's wonderful yeah. man well, we're pumped to do our our uh, volume know. wall coming up yeah, you're yeah, making yeah. us really excited to get our feet wet in that department absolutely man what is one piece of advice that you can give to filmmakers trying to grow in their craft or their business for for me in my experience was setting up that were practical uh, goals and maybe sometimes not so practical uh, one of them being when I was out of film school, I wanted to work with Emmanuel Lubeski, who's a DP. 
uh, Mexican DP, shot so many amazing movies, Birdman, you know, that's after I worked with him. But I worked with him on Ali, on Michael Mann's movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, I want to work with Robert Ellswit. So I set like a bunch of goals that were like, yeah, come out of film school, I want to be DP. But that wasn't a, like, yes, of course, that that's it. But set the goals that have a foundation to where you can learn and, and grow. So, you know, it's finding the things that you like and then setting a goal. And it can also be like something having a journal. Like I, uh, I would take a journal and write dash, comma, dash, comma, dash, comma. And then I write countries. And this is like January 1st. And then I'd be like, I want to go to three countries this year. Like how amazing. And then I would put you know, Chile, you know, I start filling it up and sometimes add more dashes. So every year I would, or I put a line and a line comma, comma, and I put cities or I put a line and I write TV show. Like literally that was my starting place. I don't do it anymore. Uh, you know, now thankfully I've got agents and like I get book, you know, meetings and things are off, you know, up and running. But in the beginning, there was like no one calling me. I was like calling Craigslist, Manny.com. I was like looking for jobs. Nobody was sending me scripts. <laughs> and uh, and it could be a line and say like a line, comma, line, scripts. You know, so these type of goals is, is it's, uh, it's uh, exercising, you know, process. Like, mm. you know, now I have a TV show and I'm just like uh, lamppost. Like I write in my notes, lamppost. <laughs> I want, and I tell our department, start building a lamppost for this scene. So it just, it, 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 it's, it's always so creative. Or I sent my, uh, one year I sent out my, film, my resume in film cans. And everyone's like, what are you sending your resume on film cams? Someone's going to hire you that way. And then I got called to work on an HBO documentary because you look at the stack of resumes and you see a film can, immediately it preps curiosity. <laughs> so just really be creative uh, in terms of any type of process, you know, at the time. You don't have to be, you know, saying a DP, you want to be DP is not a creative thing. You know, be creative in your pursuit. Mm, it's good, man. Yeah. The The goals piece is such a huge component. Uh, and Shane and I both just recently read a book called Vivid Vision by Cameron Harold. And it just talks about like putting all of those goals that are three years out in front of you uh, in a very, you know, well-crafted written document. And it would be, you'd be amazed at how quickly you start checking off some of the items on that list. So I love the reminder to just yeah. write out your goals uh, that you're headed yeah. uh, for in your in your craft. So it's awesome, man. Uh, last question for you, man. Who is one filmmaker that you admire and why? Man, so many. I think my pillar reference is Michael Mann. So even if you watch Lincoln Lawyer, it's Queen of Sound. Any any work that I do, my process is uh, what I seem to gather uh, with my friends who work on it and just my own observation is uh, to, to try to, I think it does go into that sacred space. I think, you know, he loves performance. He does keep the camera rolling, however. And um, I think Michael Mann was in terms of lighting, the way he sees the world, it's very much like a street photographer. Mm. You'll pick three different locations and pretend it's one location, you know? Uh, So it's super, the most street photography way. In fact, I think one of his Guzmano, one of his colleagues was uh, like a graffiti street photographer type person. 
and was a lot of a, much like a muse or inspiration to Michael that would, he would send him off to go look for locations and really talk to gangbangers and shoot pictures and really make it authentic. Mm. So to me, the Michael Mann way was as much informative and indicative of the work I still do in terms of speed, you know, less is more, uh, and just really immersive, uh, filmmaking. Mm. Man, you are a wealth of knowledge and inspiration, man. We are very grateful to have had you on the show. I love all of your insight into the filmmaking industry. I'm super excited to see what films you continue to make, man. And we just want to thank you again for being on the show and sharing your wisdom, knowledge, and expertise. Thank you so much for having me. Love it, man. For those and, who uh, want to get, for those that want to get connected with you, man, how can people get in touch? It's only Instagram. Abe, A-B-E dot Martinez dot D-P, uh, director of photography. Perfect. Love it, man. Well, thank you once again for joining us on this episode. For those that are still with us, thank you for sticking around to the end of the episode and catch us next time on The Rough Cut Club. Mm-hmm.